Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, October 6th, 2022, the 624th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, and you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a variety of platforms. Just please share it with your friends. Even the most ardent and deranged Trump hater understands that Donald Trump is a powerful communicator, which is why they're all so happy to have him off Twitter and unable to reach most people in the mainstream who wouldn't otherwise be following him. But most of them don't seem to understand why, and that's part of what makes them so crazy. I want to propose that there's actually a pretty simple explanation for this, 
And it's that Donald Trump has a talent for calling the thing exactly what it is. Even if no one's going to agree with him at the time, he sees the thing, he understands it for what it is, and he speaks about it directly. Here's an example from a speech he gave yesterday. Hispanic Americans understand that there's nothing compassionate about empowering human traffickers and child smugglers who extort, rape, abuse, and even sell migrants into slavery. There is nothing virtuous about surrendering America's borders to transnational gangs and murderers and criminal cartels. That is an extremely simple yet totally descriptive statement on what the real situation at the border actually is. It's not a set of numbers and statistics. It's not a phrase carefully crafted by focus groups. And he's not mincing words. It's human trafficking. It's child trafficking. It's the trafficking of women, the trafficking of drugs. They are abused. They are assaulted. They are raped. They are murdered and they are sold into slavery. Now, I've been calling what's happening at the border a slave trade for an awful long time. And as we talked about yesterday, people who first come to the show are going to hear that as hyperbolic or extreme. They're going to think that I am exaggerating to push a political point in a political position. That's not what I'm doing. It is calling the thing what it is. And no one does that better than Donald Trump. That is why he is such a powerful communicator. It is also why he makes the communists so crazy, because direct statements calling the thing what it is, is what breaks through their convoluted, complicated explanation for why all of this stuff isn't bad. And to understand why this is so effective, you have to understand what's going on in the brains of these communists and how they form their positions or maybe more accurately, how they justify holding the positions they are told they must hold because they are spoken to directly on moral terms and because the weight of the moral claim to them is so powerful, they will accept the claims under whatever terms are presented because they want to imagine that they are good people. And good people will always choose the right side of an issue. And this is extremely effective in the false reality because they will be told, for instance, that you can't argue with what's going on at the border. If you do, it's because you don't want brown people in America and therefore you're racist. And to support that claim, they'll begin talking about the history of racism or they'll talk about the conditions that all of these poor migrants are fleeing. They'll talk about how dangerous climate change is becoming in parts of the world that have always been hot. And that will be enough for them because there is never a powerful moral claim coming back at them from the other side, because most people in the Republican Party and on the right before Donald Trump arrived they don't actually have the courage or the integrity to call the thing what it is and go after it at its root. They'll accept the left's claim about what the thing is, and then they'll try to say, well, we have a slightly better solution. 
But no one on the left is interested in hearing about a slightly better solution from someone they consider a racist. So that tactic is doomed to fail from the start, and that's why it always does fail. They don't care about your statistics, your numbers, your anecdotal claims, the number of people who've died from fentanyl, etc., etc. They think all that stuff is secondary. We have to let these people in because they need to get in. And if you don't let them in, you're racist. All those other problems that come along with it, they believe everybody is trying to solve those problems at the same time. And the problems are just so difficult and so persistent that it's impossible to fully solve them. So those problems just become collateral damage from an unavoidable situation. And if you go through one of these conversations with them, you will find yourself trying to pick away at each one of their explanations for why they believe their powerful and direct, albeit completely false, moral claim about how racism is the biggest issue at play when it comes to the southern border. And you can go around in circles with them for hours without convincing them that your position is not, in fact, a product of racism. They will believe that they hold the high moral ground the entire time. And even if you can prove to them that they don't even know anything about the situation, they will still believe that racism is the biggest issue and that people on their side who care about that, who care about racism, who understand that racism is the biggest issue, have ways to explain everything else. So their total lack of intellectual depth and understanding on the issue doesn't matter, not even to them. They'll just say, well, I'm not an expert. And you know what comes next? You're not an expert either. Therefore, they revert to their original position. If you argue against the slave trade at the southern border, you are racist. Donald Trump was the first politician in maybe my lifetime who actually understood the battlefield that we are on. The response is never to send them links that they won't read or tell them numbers that they don't understand and think they can refute or even show them proof that all of these problems that they recognize as problems are significantly worse under the illegitimate Biden administration, the response is to be simple and direct. It's to say without hesitation, knowing you can back it up, you voted for someone who's facilitating a slave trade. Don't you dare call me racist. Now, if you don't find the argument that what's happening at the southern border is a slave trade, then I don't know what to tell you, but fine, don't make the argument. But if you're not going to make that argument, then you shouldn't expect to win the debate with a leftist who believes that racism is the critical issue at play here. There is no set of facts that is going to trump the importance of racism in their calculus. This is how they have been taught to think about the world. They need a direct moral claim that they think gives them the moral high ground and for which they believe there is ample intellectual support. 
Otherwise, the people on their side wouldn't keep saying it. They take these things as fact. But the argument that it is a slave trade is really simple and one that you should be confident in making. There are NGOs in foreign countries, in places that the global communist order has devastated through their policy, through their agenda, through their exploitation of those people, of their land, and of their resources. Those NGOs find people who they can move. And the truth is, it doesn't matter whether or not those people are going along willingly. It doesn't matter that they're being told a great story about how they're going to go to the promised land and everything is going to be taken care of. Everything is going to be fine as soon as you get to America. They collect these people. They move them around the world. It's not just up from the Golden Triangle through Mexico. There are people from 140, 150 different countries in any given month that are brought to the United States through our southern border. How are they getting here? Are they swimming from Angola and the Democratic Republic of Congo? Of course not. So how are they getting here? Who's funding it? Why does the UN have migration programs that work hand in hand with these NGOs all around the world? Why has the UN had a migration program in Ukraine for the last two decades? They move people around the world to where the globalists find those people more useful. They are handed off to the cartels at a high price. The cartels bring them to the border and then across the border. On that journey, the women and children are raped. There are rape trees where the underwear of migrants who were raped are hung on the tree branches. They're marking their territory. It's evidence of atrocity and it's a threat. And they finally get to the border. Once they're across the border, they fall into the hands of new NGOs that figure out where in the country these people need to be distributed to. And then they distribute these people to those places. And once they're here, they're exploited for their labor and their political power. They don't have a whole lot of choice about where they work. They're going to work for extremely low wages and they're going to work all the time because that's why they were brought here. That is a slave trade. Now, child brains communists might not recognize that as a slave trade at first because they've been educated to believe that the only slaves are poor black Africans brought here by the white man and set to work on plantations where they are whipped, etc. That is all they think and know about slavery. Now, are they going to accept all of this right away? Probably not. But the truth is, it doesn't matter. Because if you start with the direct moral claim that you know you can prove by the definition of what a slave trade is, they're not going to have a comeback for that. And you have just seized their moral high ground from them. And it's a moral high ground that actually does exist. This isn't fake. It's not a lie. It's not a trick or a manipulation. They believe they're right because they can call the other side racist. You can't call the other side racist while you're supporting a slave trade. And deep down, somewhere in their little commie brains, they know this. And that's why they go nuts. 
Now, this may not be the sort of thing that you want to say to one of your communist friends or maybe a family member, but it's still true. You voted for a man who facilitates a slave trade. Don't you dare call me racist. We cannot be afraid of doing this unless we want to see the world continue to go down this path. And you shouldn't hesitate to do this in any way while the person you're talking to is calling you a racist. But we pretend, no, no, they couldn't be calling me a racist. They're just calling other people who express the same opinion that I'm expressing racist. They would never say this about me. Of course, they don't actually know any of those people. You're the one they know who's representing that opinion. And they have convinced themselves and they will tell other people that your opinion is racist. So who are they calling a racist if not you when they don't know any of those other people? Oh, MAGA supporters, they're very racist, but you're not. I understand that you're one of the good ones. So I'm not insulting you. I'm just insulting everyone else who has the thoughts you have. And that's all that is. It is only an insult. But the flip side of that is not an insult. It's just a simple statement about what is happening in the world. You voted for a man who facilitates a slave trade. Don't you dare call me racist. And Joe Biden and the illegitimate administration does facilitate this. There should be no doubt about that. They're the ones leaving the border open. They're the ones whose allies are coordinating the whole scheme. And they're the ones who have turned the control of the southern border over to the cartels. There is no doubt about whose responsibility this is. They actually are happy to argue for all of this in public because the people had such bad lives in those countries that our allies have devastated. It's not an insult. It's just a statement of fact about the real world as it exists. And you can say, hey, I'm sorry. I know that the propaganda and censorship effort is really powerful. I understand that it affects a lot of people. People don't want to think about themselves as bad people. And so when they are told they are bad by their culture, they want to stop what's making them bad because they don't want to be seen as bad, particularly not by people who might be able to help them advance in life and climb the rungs of the ladder of the party of false decorum. It is not an insult to say to somebody, hey, I'm sorry, you've been tricked, especially not when all of these people will tell you that supporting Donald Trump means you're a member of a cult. You are not actually morally or otherwise required to supplicate yourself in front of these people and make sure that you don't hurt their feelings while everything they say to you is intentionally insulting. We are not required to do that. Just speak the truth directly. You voted for a man who facilitates a slave trade. Don't you dare call me racist. No one does this better than Donald Trump. And thank God he does it so well. And thank God it has all been made so public. Donald Trump may not be an example of how to act in every single situation, but he's a perfect example for this. And he has taught this country and the good people in it how to fight back. That is why he is so important. He is able to show the world that he can win on the proper terms. 
There is absolutely no doubt that the communists are absolutely fine with winning by cheating. What they do is totally unprincipled and it's totally dishonest, but it makes a whole lot of sense if you are part of the complete and total inversion within the false reality. In the false reality, it actually makes sense for them to say that you're racist for calling it a slave trade. And if they pursue that strategy, that's when you start laughing in their face and saying, okay, commie, go with that, and then walking away. But the point is, you never cede the moral high ground when you know you have it. That's what it is to be principled. That's what it means to have integrity. We cannot continue to allow these people to get away with this strategy over and over and over again because we are scared to speak the truth directly for how it might make them feel. Let them call you stupid or uneducated or unsophisticated. It doesn't matter. They've already been insulting you the entire time. Reverse the moral equation on these people and know that you have the high ground there. It would be wonderful if we were in a perfectly moral world where we could continue to treat these people with kid gloves and try to respect everyone's false sense of decorum. But we can't do that. And the more we do it, the more degraded our society will become. And the same goes for referring to all of this as communism. It is communism. It is proven as communism. And if you're still having a hard time with that, take it from the illegitimate vice president. Equality suggests often everybody should get the same thing. Well, that often assumes everybody started out in the same place. As opposed to equity, which is everyone should end up in the same place. And if you then understand not everybody started out in the same place, you understand some people need more. So we all end up in the same place. And there you have it. Equality of the outcome is the goal. Equality, she says, suggests that everyone should get the same thing. But that's not what equality suggests. Equality suggests that everyone should be treated as equal in terms of the value of their lives and their character and their standing in public. It doesn't mean we all get the same stuff. And it doesn't assume that everyone starts out in the same place because that's impossible. It is also impossible to make sure everyone gets the same stuff or that everyone ends up in the same place. That is the communist utopia, and it is not possible. In fact, it is the road to that utopia as lain by our betters that causes the dehumanization and all the suffering. It is not the goal of life to end up in the same place as everyone else or to make sure that everyone starts in the same place and finishes in the same place. And these people don't even really believe that because they are never trying to make themselves equal to the people on the lowest rungs of society. And no one ever requires that of them. All the problems are unavoidable. When things don't work, that's collateral damage in pursuit of the utopia. It's a speed bump on the road to progress. And you can prove how incoherent their argument is immediately simply by asking them who's going to control this process. 
And they will say the experts, the academics, people with the most knowledge, people in positions of power. You have to have people in positions of power to be able to enforce that equality. But if they're in power and they're the experts, they're the ones everyone has to listen to. Well, how do they end up in the same place as everyone else? Call the thing what it is. Now, let's head over to the cesspool that is Twitter. Yesterday, an account called Neville the Cat that is at Fear the Floof posted a thread exposing a few of Blue Anon Twitter's most prominent members. And Blue Anon, of course, are the insane conspiracy theorists that you can recognize quickly by the little blue verified check mark next to their name. Here's the thread. One of the most fascinating things about the modern age we live in is the population of journalists almost exclusively being from mega rich families and the fact they have done such a good job of hiding it from the Internet. The most extreme case of this is Carlos Maza. Right out of Wake Forest University, he worked for Vox, pushing extreme left wing views and targeting anyone on the right, no matter how poor or middle class. What almost no one knew was he was a billionaire. What's amazing about this is almost no one knew his mother and stepfather were tech billionaires with multiple mansions, yachts, and private planes. Mazza was raised in a $10.8 million mansion in Boca Raton, Florida. Until his termination at Vox, there was no Google result you could get that could tell you anything on Carlos Mazza's background. Nothing. A complete memory hole. For almost 10 years, he was able to use his massive platform to cancel anyone he saw fit to and abuse his power unchecked. It wasn't until he was fired from Vox for being too much of a left-wing extremist, just let that sink in, and he began his failed YouTube career, did anyone do any digging into how this guy afforded some of the most expensive real estate in New York with no income? A billionaire journalist who went to Christopher Columbus High School and Wake Forest University was able to cosplay working class socialist attacking poor and working class people for years without anyone knowing his real background. Taylor Lorenz might actually be an even worse offender of this hypocrisy. While also born to fabulous wealth and privilege, she has the family power to keep her past off the Internet even after it became known she can actually get it removed forever from the internet. What's amazing about Taylor Lorenz is we know she was born in New York City, raised in the richest zip code of Connecticut. We know she attended a Swiss private boarding school and graduated from Hobart and William Smith College, but that's about it. While this woman of wealth and privilege can dox even the poorest, weakest, and least powerful people on the internet, publishing all their private information, address, workplaces, and phone numbers, she can apparently get anything about herself wiped from the internet forever. How would a TikTok journalist be able to get her history wiped off the internet forever? Well, hold on while we go deep into the family of Miss Lorenz you can't find on the internet without much, much effort. For the record, this is all publicly available information. It's just hard to find without looking. Taylor Lorenz was born to mega rich developer Walter R. Lorenz, 65, and Anne Lorenz, 67, and raised in a $5.7 million mansion. Her sister is Brooke Lorenz of CNN. But it's her uncle that's the big story here. You see, Taylor Lorenz's mom and uncle were mega rich 
children of a very powerful politician. And McDonald, her uncle, is the owner and founder of the Wayback Machine Internet Archive. Trying to find info about any of these people on the internet is nearly impossible. Taylor Lorenz even had her uncle exempt her Twitter account from the Wayback Machine. Once she deletes her tweets, they are literally wiped from the internet forever. Now that's power you can't buy. Go ahead, Google her, go to her wiki page. Do you see anything there like you do with literally any other public figure? Nope, nothing. She's even managed to have any public record of her date of birth wiped. Pics of her from high school or college that could age her? Gone. For the record, Taylor Lorenz was born October 21st, 1984 in New York, New York, making her 37 years old. She will be 38 in 16 days. Wish her a happy birthday. Taylor Lorenz, a mega rich child of wealth and privilege from a powerful political family whose uncle can wipe any of her history off the Internet forever, has been given massive platforms with the New York Times and the Washington Post to attack, smear, dox, harass and terrorize anyone she wants. He goes on to Ben Collins, the NBC News reporter I just talked about yesterday, who was melting down over the fact that Elon Musk might uncensor Twitter. Ben Collins, not the race car driver from Top Gear of NBC News, has leveraged his power and family wealth to become one of the most powerful Internet hall monitors of our age. While Taylor Lorenz can get her wiki page wiped, Ben doesn't even have one. Like, really? The lead disinformation journalist at the biggest network news platform in the United States has not even a blurb that pops up in the first hundred Google results. Like there are obscure poets from hundreds of years ago from countries that don't exist anymore that have at least a blurb on wiki. How is information on one of the most powerful journalists with a massive platform so hard to find? Literally everywhere you go, this is what you'll find. And it's a short bio on Ben Collins. And it basically has some information about where he was born and where he was raised. And that's it. What we do know is he is a 47 year old man who went to Emerson College, which costs, wait for it, a whopping $75,000 a year to attend in today's dollars. A very private, very exclusive, buy your way in college founded in 1880 for rich white people to buy an exclusive education. Ben Collins has built a brand around targeting citizens who work against Democrats and labeling them domestic terrorists. For the most part, he targets the poor and middle class, the weak, the people with no resources and no way to fight back or clear their name once smeared. But again, Ben Collins gets to be a private person. His parents, his address, his personal and private life are protected from public view. You don't get to know about the wealth and privilege he grew up in. But if he targets you, everyone will know what you had for dinner. He goes on to mention how Anderson Cooper is a Vanderbilt. He goes on to mention Chris Cuomo and Chris Cuomo's father was the governor of New York. His brother, of course, was also just the governor of New York until not very long ago. Some of the rich and powerful have not made the effort to hide their wealth and privilege as they are so rich and powerful. They have no fucks to give about you knowing they can crash you. Insert the Matt Iglesias type journalist. Matt Iglesias, 41 years old, was born to Rafael Iglesias, millionaire, screenwriter, and novelist. His paternal grandparents were novelists, Jose Iglesias and Helen Iglesias. That's generational wealth. And thank goodness that this thread was archived 
because it was removed from Twitter not long after, as was the account of the person who posted it. So for exposing these Blue Anon journalists whose primary mission in life is to attack personally anyone who disagrees powerfully with the central narrative, this thread was removed from Twitter and the member was removed from Twitter. In fact, the last tweet from that account was, well, that's it. I'm canceled. Goodbye, everybody. And it's pretty incredible. It would be shocking if we didn't understand the false reality. The people he exposed got upset, complained to Twitter, and now that entire account is gone, thus proving exactly what the tweeter was saying. And they don't care at all. But this is what we're dealing with. These are some of the most powerful people on that platform. These people pretend to stand up for social justice and they will use any means at their disposal to silence their critics. And they don't even care about their hypocrisy being on display because they know that they have the power to fix it and to just make it all go away. Politico has decided to do a little damage control on the left wing meltdown over Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. They published this yesterday. Three reasons Washington is freaking out about Elon Musk right now. Elon Musk's expected takeover of Twitter has Washington holding its breath. If the world's richest man reinstates Donald Trump, along with other controversial politicians banned for rules violations, Republican campaign managers could again find their days wrecked by tweet-driven headaches. Oh, thank goodness. They're looking out for Republican campaign managers. They don't want those rhinos to have to answer questions about America first Republicans speaking the truth on Twitter. Meanwhile, Democrats worry a revived Trump Twitter feed could be a huge boon for his future presidential ambitions. And just like Ben Collins yesterday, they are admitting the problem. They are admitting the political manipulation. He is censored to hurt his presidential political ambitions, which is necessarily true if you're going to claim that him going back on the platform would help his political ambitions. Or Musk, who says he's a free speech absolutist, could end up scaring off users and invite a wave of litigation if he does away with the platform's efforts to weed out disinformation, racism and other vitriol. If they say something that is illegal or otherwise just destructive to the world, then there should be perhaps a timeout, a temporary suspension. But I think permabans just fundamentally undermine trust in Twitter, Musk has said in the past. Beloved by politicians and journalists, though perhaps not as widely read outside the Beltway, the platform looks like it's headed for major changes that could shape the upcoming midterms and 2024 presidential elections, especially if Trump is allowed back. What exactly this means for Washington's political elite and journalists who rely on the platform for breaking news and political discourse remains up in the air. But here are some potential pitfalls of a Musk run Twitter. A Trump return good for Dems? With less than five weeks until the 2022 midterms, a Trump return could serve as a distraction for the GOP and a key messaging narrative for Democrats. 
The risk is that it helps Democrats succeed in framing this as an election about Donald Trump, which they would love to do, even though he's not on the ballot. He's not anywhere close to a ballot. Eric Wilson, a managing partner of Startup Caucus, a Republican campaign technology investment fund, said in an interview, and that is some rhino bullshit. Donald Trump leads the biggest political movement in this country, perhaps in this country's history. Any Republican running away from that is going to have a very short political career if they have one at all. And looking ahead, a Trump return could have a tremendous impact on 2024 elections, especially if Donald Trump is a presidential candidate. Andrew Bleeker, president of the progressive political public affairs firm Bully Pulpit Interactive, said in an interview, you can think of it as a $40 billion donation to the Trump campaign. It's too bad that Politico didn't note that Bleeker said that while weeping and wiping away his tears. Still, it's not entirely clear whether Trump would help or hurt Republicans. It's like the weather. I can't know what the weather is going to be on Election Day, but it's going to have an impact. It could be good. It could be bad, Wilson said. It could also mean the return of midnight tweet storms that political reporters and editors had come to dread and expect during the Trump administration. And of course, they would dread that because if Trump is tweeting while they're sleeping and people see it, they can't get ahead of the narrative with their little 4.30 a.m. talking points. They believe that it's unfair that things are happening while they're not there to respond immediately. Misinformation and hate speech could poison the platform. Despite its ups and downs, Twitter has had one of the more responsible content moderation policies of the large social media platforms, said Mark Jablonowski, president of DS Political, an advertising technology firm supporting Democratic candidates. Pulling that risks Twitter turning into 4chan or an 8chan, which we just really don't want to see, he said. If Trump is able to throw his support behind candidates with a very loud megaphone that may not be factually accurate, sharing misinformation and disinformation, that could absolutely sway elections away from Democrats, Jablonowski said. And once again, an unintentional but hilarious admission from these communists. They could lose the election simply by allowing other people to express their points of view. Also, less moderation could lead to a dramatic rise in hate speech and extremism on the platform, watchdog groups say. I think there's a serious threat to democracy. Jessica Gonzalez, co-CEO of Free Press, a nonpartisan media advocacy organization, said in an interview, and we've talked about Jessica Gonzalez on this show before, she is a through and through devout, diehard communist. I think we'll see prolific conspiracy theories and white supremacists return to the platform and a lot more people who hold power and who are willing to use platforms to spread hate and harassment campaigns. Tech companies, including Twitter, have invested heavily trying to establish nuanced rules to keep such offensive types of speech off the platform, Bleeker said. But he adds, Musk is going to need to act quickly to recoup his investment. And he's going to move towards subscriptions and cost-cutting measures to get there. And of course, that's simply rampant speculation. Elon Musk has made it clear that his priority isn't making money on Twitter. 
The fear is that a lot of the important safety mechanisms are the first thing to go in the name of free speech, he said. And another unintentional and hilarious admission that the safety mechanisms, as they call them, are simply a euphemism for removing free speech. An explosion of hate speech could also raise significant legal challenges for Twitter, said Emma Yanso, director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology, a tech policy think tank. And because you know how much I love to look at who these people actually are, let's check out the Center for Democracy and Technology on InfluenceWatch.org. The Center for Democracy and Technology is a center-left nonprofit founded in 1994 that advocates for internet privacy, net neutrality regulations, and transferring governance of internet domain names away from the United States to an international body, among other issues. Its largest donors include major technology conglomerates, including Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. Left of center foundations, including George Soros's foundation to promote open society, the Ford Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation have also contributed to CDT. Their leadership includes President Nuala O'Connor, who served in the George W. Bush administration as chief privacy officer at the Department of Homeland Security from April 2003 to September 2005. Their vice president for policy previously served as the ACLU's Legislative Council. Lisa Hayes, their vice president for strategy and the general counsel, was previously a private practice lawyer in Washington state, where she also served on the state's Gender and Justice Commission. Brett Wesolowski, the vice president for external affairs, previously served as the director of communications for Qatar's Supreme Council of Information and Communication Technology. It is so nice to have a former Bushy teaming up with complete and total communists. I just love it when, quote unquote, both sides work together. So here are the rest of the donor organizations, by the way. The Democracy Fund, the John and Mary Markle Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Silicon Valley Communication Foundation. And you're not going to believe this, but... Under their donor recipients is listed the Center for Tech and Civic Life. Well, that's the group that helped steal the 2020 election. It's curious that Politico refers to them only as a tech policy think tank. She noted that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear cases this term that threaten tech companies coveted liability shield. And the Digital Services Act regulation in the EU is aimed at cracking down on illegal and harmful content on the platforms. The legal environment in general that Twitter is operating in is just increasingly less forgiving about abuse going unaddressed, Yanso said. Oh man, that might mean that people in the EU might have Twitter taken away by their governments altogether once the governments can no longer control what shows up on Twitter. An exodus of politicians to be determined in a world where Twitter has zero or very little content moderation. Will all of its politicians jump ship? That's a possibility. Well, that's an unlikely possibility because as Ben Collins noted yesterday, they don't have a backup plan. Consider the arrogance from the communists on Twitter. They own Twitter. They control Twitter. 
If things on Twitter make them upset, all they have to do is generate a mob and Twitter will fix that thing for them. Because, of course, they have the power of the government, the law enforcement agencies, the intel community, and the backing of massive corporate money. But they have no backup plan. If they are forced to participate in a censorship-free environment, they might flee social media altogether. No backup plan. No fortification for the communications channels of the communists. It's beautiful to witness, honestly. Politicians go where voters are. And so as long as the people who are upstream of shaping political narratives, namely journalists, talking heads, pundits, and political operatives are active on Twitter, then expect the politicians to be there, Wilson said. If it becomes an unpleasant place for those people, then they'll leave and go somewhere else, presumably, he said. But where? However, political advisors on both sides of the aisle remain skeptical that Musk will blow up the platform after paying $44 billion to buy it. To make money, you need people to be on the platform, Wilson said. There are steps between where Twitter is now and an internet cesspool. It's not an either or. Actually, Twitter is already an internet cesspool, and there aren't really people on there anyway. The overwhelming majority of the content there is created by like 10% of the accounts. And a majority of the accounts in general are bots. Jablonowski said, there's always a possibility that he's able to walk the tightrope and get it just right. And this is of Musk. One other source of revenue for Musk and a major draw to attract more politicians to the platform and keep them there would be to lift the ban on political advertising that former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey put in place in October 2019. Allowing paid media for political campaigns could, in theory, help campaigns amplify a message combating misinformation on the platform, Jablonowski said. But it really depends because would politicians want to be advertising on a platform that is filled with hate speech and disinformation? And let's be sure we're clear about this. This paid advertising, as they call it, these campaigns to combat misinformation, what they are paying for is placement within people's feeds. They are paying to amplify their message, which requires a deamplification of other messaging. And considering the overwhelming funding that would be behind that effort, you can basically take that as censorship by another name. And it's funny that they're worried about politicians wanting to advertise on a platform that is filled with hate speech and disinformation, as if that's not already what Twitter is. But the bigger point is that Twitter just lost a bunch of its corporate advertisers because they were paying to advertise on a site that hosts child pornography. And that's not a new revelation. That's something Twitter has known about for quite a long time. In fact, there are active lawsuits right now proving that Twitter was hosting child pornography on the site and not taking it down. It's part of the public record in Genevieve Morton versus Twitter. But let's finish out this slop from Politico. One key point, however, is often overlooked. Twitter has never been very popular with the average voter. And while a Musk takeover may push some politicians off the platform, it's still not where the majority of voters spend their time. And that may well be true, but it is still where the vast, vast majority of political narratives are created and spread. 
Twitter is not a platform for raising money. It's not a platform for persuading voters. It is all about shaping that narrative for campaigns, Wilson said. Bleeker added, Twitter is the real-time news platform for politics, but it's not the primary place that you're going to reach the vast majority of voters and really educate the vast majority of voters. Facebook platforms today and YouTube really have a much greater reach to the actual American public. However, it plays out the Tesla CEO's $44 billion offer to buy Washington's favorite social media site appears to have gotten a green light from Twitter on Tuesday for the second time after he had tried to back out of the deal and was eventually sued by Twitter this summer. Although the Delaware Court of Chancery judge said on Wednesday that a planned trial is still on as of now, set to begin October 17th. And that is interesting that that trial is going to continue to move forward. Elon Musk was actually supposed to be deposed today, but that got delayed. This is from today on TechCrunch. Twitter is making its crowdsourced fact checks visible to all U.S. users with Birdwatch expansion. After last month's expansion of Twitter's crowdsourced fact-checking program known as Birdwatch, Twitter announced this morning the notes fact-checkers leave on tweets will now be visible to all U.S. users. That doesn't mean everyone in the U.S. will be able to participate in Birdwatch, however. The service had around 15,000 contributors during its pilot testing phase and was planning to add around 1,000 more per week, Twitter said in September. If Twitter stayed on track with that goal, it would have grown to around 19,000 contributors as of this week. The idea with Birdwatch is to add a layer of fact-checking and context to tweets that don't necessarily violate Twitter's rules. Instead, it can wade into gray areas to address misinformation across a range of topics beyond politics and science to also clarify, correct, or add more information to tweets in areas like health sports, entertainment, and other random curiosities that pop up on the internet. Like whether or not someone just tweeted a photo of a bat the size of a human. Twitter had recently explained, you see, it's just the innocuous, silly stuff. They just don't want anybody to get confused. They're looking out for you. A key aspect as to how this system works is Birdwatch's bridging algorithm. This is different from typical social media algorithms that rate higher or approve based on whether or not there's a majority consensus, those that rank content higher when it reaches a certain level of engagement. Instead, Birdwatch's algorithm looks to find consensus across groups where there are differing points of view before it highlights the crowdsourced fact checks to other Twitter users. To become a Birdwatch contributor, users must first prove they're capable of writing helpful notes the annotations on tweets that provide further context. To determine this, Twitter assigns each potential contributor a rating impact score. The score begins at zero and must reach a five for a person to become a Birdwatch contributor, a metric that's likely achievable after a week's work. The score itself can grow well beyond five over time. Users gain points by rating Birdwatch notes that enable the note to earn the status of helpful or not helpful. They lose points when their rating ends up in contrast with the note's final status. Once the user unlocks the ability to write their own Birdwatch notes, they can begin adding contributions and fact checks. But the quality of their work could lead them to lose their contributor status once again, Twitter said. 
In other words, someone couldn't game their way into the system by playing by the rules, then use their contributor status to amplify or spread misinformation. They would be kicked out and they would have to prove themselves again to ever rejoin. So basically, they are recruiting an army of communists who are going to enforce a consensus and enforce that consensus on themselves to be able to enjoy the status of a conversation shaper. This is almost as good as when the FBI asked people to begin narking on their family members. The timing of Birdwatch's U.S. expansion is notable given the upcoming midterm elections. But it's also arriving as Twitter's potential acquirer, Elon Musk, now seems to want to go through with the deal, or at least stop the courts from reading more of his texts. Musk's ownership, of course, brings questions as to whether projects like Birdwatch will continue, given Musk's desire to make Twitter more of a free speech platform. It's unclear if he will think that means reducing Twitter's own content moderation capabilities, or if he would also want to suppress a crowdsourced fact-checking system like this as well. What a jerk. I can't believe he's going to suppress the crowd. In announcing the news this morning, Twitter's Birdwatch account noted that during trials, Birdwatch notes have been found helpful by a wide range of people, and definitely not bots, were deemed informative, independent of users' political affiliation, and informed people's sharing behavior as people who saw a note choose to like or retweet the tweet 15 to 35% less on average. And look at that. Twitter has found a nice sounding way to crowdsource shadow banning. Isn't that incredible? In a blog post, Twitter also noted that according to the results of four surveys run between August 2021 and August 2022, a person who sees a birdwatch note is, on average, 20 to 40% less likely to agree with the substance of a potentially misleading tweet than someone who sees the tweet alone. The surveys ranged in size from 3,000 to more than 19,000 participants, Twitter added, and the results remained consistent. Twitter says U.S. users will begin seeing notes occasionally in their Twitter feeds starting today but they will not appear all the time as notes only show up when they've earned a status of helpful, the company notes. And this is notable not only in the context of Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter, but in Twitter's continuing failures in the court system to be able to keep their censorship regime in place. They are finding brand new ways to censor. And if they can't censor, if they can't wipe stuff completely off the platform, then they are going to disincentive users from sharing it. You can bet your life that there will be a new cultural standard where people will be classified as untrustworthy spreaders of disinformation if they continually share tweets with these little notes on them. This week, the fake president's illegitimate administration released a blueprint for an AI bill of rights and an accompanying fact sheet. This is the fact sheet published on October 4th. Today, the Biden-Harris administration's Office of Science and Technology Policy released a blueprint for a bill of rights to help guide the design, development, and deployment of artificial intelligence and other automated systems so that they protect the rights of the American public. 
President Biden is standing up to special interests and has long said it is time to hold big technology companies accountable for the harms they cause and to ensure the American public is protected in an increasingly automated world. The framework builds on the Biden-Harris administration's work to hold big technology accountable, protect the civil rights of Americans, and ensure technology is working for the American people. And they're always doing that. You know, they want everybody to understand that vaccines are only safe and effective and definitely not totally ineffective and very, very dangerous. So to do this well, they need to hold big tech accountable. Automated technologies are increasingly used to make everyday decisions affecting people's rights, opportunities, and access in everything from hiring to housing to healthcare, education, and financial services. While these technologies can drive great innovations like enabling early cancer detection or helping farmers grow food more efficiently, studies have shown how AI can display opportunities unequally or embed bias and discrimination in decision-making processes. As a result, automated systems can replicate or deepen inequalities already present in society against ordinary people, underscoring the need for greater transparency, accountability, and privacy. And I've talked about this before. These algorithms have a garbage in, garbage out problem, especially algorithms like the ones that guide censorship on Twitter. The algorithm is developed in an already closed space which means the algorithm is constantly analyzing only partial information intentionally because there's no other choice when you are getting rid of half of the information because you don't want anyone to see it. The blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights addresses these urgent challenges by laying out five core protections to which everyone in America should be entitled. Safe and effective systems. You should be protected from unsafe or ineffective systems. Algorithmic discrimination protections. You should not face discrimination by algorithms and systems should be used and designed in an equitable way. And we all know what equity is. Data privacy. You should be protected from abusive data practices via built-in protections, and you should have agency over how data about you is used. And if you can't trust the illegitimate administration to guide that policy, well, who can you trust? Notice an explanation. You should know that an automated system is being used and understand how and why it contributes to outcomes that impact you. Alternative options. You should be able to opt out where appropriate and have access to a person who can quickly consider and remedy problems you encounter. And that's so important. Everybody knows that people make better decisions than AI, or at least sometimes AI needs to be corrected from making the wrong decision. And wrong, of course, in this case means a decision that doesn't benefit the illegitimate regime and the global communist agenda. Developed through extensive consultation with the American public, stakeholders, and U.S. government agencies, the blueprint also includes concrete steps which governments, companies, communities, and others can take in order to build these key protections into policy, practice, or technological design to ensure automated systems work for the American people. And by the way, their consultation with the American public was a series of 
listening sessions they had last November. And here are the sessions. They had one on biometric technologies, one on consumer rights and protections, the criminal justice system, equal opportunities and civil justice, artificial intelligence and democratic values, social welfare and development, and the healthcare system. So there you go. That's what it means to have extensive consultation with the American public. A bunch of listening sessions with overtly communist social justice organizations. Automated technologies are driving remarkable innovations and shaping important decisions that impact people's rights, opportunities, and access. The blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights is for everyone who interacts daily with these powerful technologies and every person whose life has been altered by unaccountable algorithms said Office of Science and Technology Policy Deputy Director for Science and Society, Dr. Alondra Nelson. The practices laid out in the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights aren't just aspirational. They are achievable and urgently necessary to build technologies and a society that works for all of us. And I'm not sure I mentioned this, but this is on the illegitimate administration's website. This is on whitehouse.gov. The blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights and federal actions we are announcing today deliver on the president's day one promise to support policies that advance equity and economic opportunity for the American people, said White House domestic policy advisor Susan Rice. Taken together, these actions will help tackle algorithmic discrimination and address the harms of automated systems on underserved communities. Biases in automated systems span sectors and can threaten the rights of the American public. In recent years, these tools have been used to surveil workers in the workplace, in some cases restricting their ability to organize, monitor, and falsely accuse students of cheating, wrongfully deny benefits to older Americans in need of health care, and arrest people for crimes they did not commit. Investigations have repeatedly found that big technology platforms, companies, and developers are deploying discriminatory algorithms and harming the public. And again, discrimination in these cases is relative to their view of equity. If they are not achieving what they consider to be equality of outcome, then that is definitionally discrimination. And this is obvious because we already have laws about actual discrimination and we already have a bill of rights that does not need to be altered outside of the bounds of the Constitution. That is what they are intending to do here. This is extra constitutional action imposed by an illegitimate administration to override the Bill of Rights in the service of what they pretend is equity. Today, the Biden-Harris administration is also announcing actions across the federal government that advance the blueprint by protecting and supporting the American people, workers and employers, educators and students, patients and healthcare providers, veterans, renters and homeowners, technologists, families and communities. And they go through exactly what they're doing. 
all of the agencies of the federal government have laid out new policies as part of this blueprint that they will now enact and override the Bill of Rights with a brand new Bill of Rights. And this Bill of Rights is so good that it operates on algorithms that you'll never know about. Your rights will be being protected behind the scenes. You won't even have to think about how much they're protecting your rights in the name of equity. And let's go through a couple of these. Protecting workers. To protect workers' rights, the Department of Labor has released what the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights means for workers and is ramping up enforcement of required surveillance reporting to protect worker organizing. Don't you get it? It's a handout to the unions, but they're doing it for your protection. And now this protection is in the AI Bill of Rights. Here's another. To promote equal employment opportunity, the EEOC and the Department of Labor have launched a multi-year collaborative effort to reimagine hiring and recruitment practices, including in the use of automated systems for equity. To protect consumers, the Federal Trade Commission is exploring rules to curb commercial surveillance, algorithmic discrimination, and lax data security practices that could violate Section 5 of the FTC Act. To protect consumers in the financial system, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau confirmed that federal anti-discrimination law requires that creditors provide consumers with specific and accurate explanations when credit applications are denied or other adverse actions are taken, even if the creditor is relying on a black box credit model using complex algorithms. CFPB is also cracking down on algorithmic discrimination in the financial sector and hiring technologists to fully staff this oversight work. To protect home buyers and owners, federal agencies that regulate mortgage financing will include a non-discrimination quality control standard as part of a forthcoming proposed rule establishing quality control standards on automated valuation models so that these models do not rely upon biased data that could replicate past discrimination in housing. So there won't be any more results that don't direct society toward equity. The algorithms are going to solve all of that. The algorithms will make the decisions so that there's absolutely no accountability at all. And that would sound like a bad scenario, but that's why they're protecting you with this new bill of rights. And here we go. Leading by example and advancing democratic values to sustain American global leadership. The U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, launched an AI action plan that commits USAID to embedding risk mitigation in AI programming and shaping a global responsible AI agenda. USAID is also supporting the development, governance, and use of responsible rights-respecting technology worldwide through the Advancing Digital Democracy Initiative. And isn't that great? They're going to put policy in place for the global community because that's what we are. We're not a country. We're part of a global community and we need to all be on the same page about our movement toward equity as Kamala Harris described it. 
to advance transparency and trust in the federal government, the Office of Management and Budget, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the Federal Chief Information Officers Council have coordinated across the government to publish inventories of non-classified and non-sensitive government AI use cases. Agencies are currently implementing their developed and approved plans to ensure their AI systems are consistent with laws and policies addressing civil rights, civil liberties, and privacy. Well, we already have that in the law. So why do they need to make these changes? These things are protected in the actual Bill of Rights and the other amendments of the Constitution. And two more. To empower technologists to promote trustworthy AI, the Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology is developing a risk management framework to help technologists incorporate considerations of fairness, safety, and privacy into the design, development, use, and evaluation of AI products, services, and systems. An online playbook companion to the AI risk management framework will also provide users with recommended actions to operationalize these considerations. To shape the long-term future of trustworthy AI with over $700 million in investments annually, the National Science Foundation continues to support AI research, including research into the fairness, security, safety, and trustworthiness of AI systems. U.S. law and policy already provides a range of protections that can be applied to these technologies and the harms they enable. Where law or policy does not already provide guidance, the blueprint should be used to inform policymaking to fill those gaps. So basically, they're going to put the equity agenda into everything guided by AI technology. If you're a company or an organization using that technology and you're not already on board with the global communist agenda, the equity agenda, then you're going to have to get on board, you know, for the protection of all Americans. That's why they're setting out this brand new bill of rights. It's for your protection, except it's not for your protection. It is for the advancement of the technocracy and the advancement of the global communist agenda. Call the thing what it is. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash imyourmoderator. And I'll see you soon, out on the range.
It's high noon! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!